This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our Strike Tape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsite owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. Welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, number one, we've got a great friend of Uptime coming on the show, Morton Hanberg, who is the Chief Blade Specialist from Wind Power Lab. He will be joining us to talk about fatigue issues in wind turbine blades. So really deep dive on that. We haven't talked much about, much about that on the podcast yet. So we're excited to talk about cracks and fatigue and, and loading and all this good stuff uh, with blades. So look for that in about 20 minutes. Uh, first, we're going to talk about GE teaming up with GM on rare earth magnets. Obviously, those are needed for motors, nacelles, etc. So big, um, two big companies teaming up to do some of that mining and some of that legwork. We'll talk about the largest subsea cable, which is now operating 450 uh, miles long, crazy long. We'll talk about Vestas. Uh, they're installing their V236 15 megawatt at the Osterild uh, test, test facility in Denmark. And also some more news from Vestas, one of their uh, executives talking about, you know, this race with wind turbines getting bigger and bigger and some of the costs and potential difficulties about that in the future. And lastly, we'll chat a little bit about a consortium led by Orbital Marine, which is the maker of the Orbital O2, a two megawatt tidal power um, machine, which we had covered about six months ago. So we'll talk a little bit about tidal power towards the end. Um, so before we get going, make sure you subscribe in the show notes of today's podcast to Uptime Tech News and to Rosemary Barnes's YouTube channel. You'll find both in the links in the description below. Remember, you'll just get an update from us if you sign up for Uptime Tech News along with other news um, from around the web. So first off, let's talk about GE and GM. They are obviously two big American companies and they are trying to figure out how they can make sure this supply chain of heavy and light rare earth magnets and materials will be available to them for years to come. You know, doing this forecasting is important work. Um, Alan, what sticks out to you? Why do you feel like these two, besides the uh, the short G, GE, GM, maybe like a GR, they can get like a G, GT to their little, their little <laughs> club. Besides the, uh, the names, what sticks out to you? Why, why are these two companies uh, going to be good partners in this? Well, they're, they're hedging their bets is what they're doing at the moment because they're concerned about China and trade with China being constricted and the economic situation that's happening in China at the moment involving real estate. And so the a lot of rare earth minerals come from, from Asia, China in particular. And there's deep concern in the United States that as our technology moves forward and we get more into the electric motor world, that we're going to need more rare earth materials that are in America, in Australia, and other places on the planet. But the investment to go get them can be rather large. And if we're thinking about uh, U.S. independence from some some key economic players in the world today, they're going to have to find U.S. sources or Canadian sources to, to go after those uh, minerals. So this, I think this makes sense. What's What's interesting about it is where's Tesla? Like GM must not be friendly with Tesla at all, and GE must not be getting along with Tesla because you think Tesla has this kind of figured out at the moment. So now Tesla's kind of pushed the side, and really big industrial players are going after those rare earth minerals. And if you can corner that market, you can really put stress on on a Tesla. So there's a lot to this particular agreement, I think. And it, Rosemary, do you see the same thing? I, I know Australia is full of great minerals. Do you have the same issue there? Yeah, I mean, we don't manufacture um, many of the things that need rare earth minerals. So I think for Australia, it's more relevant from the we want to be a supplier side of it. 
But I think that the, I mean, I'm, I'm no expert on rare earth minerals, but I am very interested in sustainable mining in general. And I think that the reason why China produces, I think it's still more than half of the world, the world's rare earth minerals. And I think it's because it's, it's so far so environmentally damaging to process them or to mine them and process them. I know that the, you know, old mines that have produced these minerals are really, really degraded now. Those areas, you, you know, often you can't grow crops in the area anymore. I think the wastewater is full of rate, like high levels of radioactive, um, yeah, high concentrations of radioactive waste. And um, I think that the rest of the world has been happy to let China, you know, go go for it because they don't want to deal with that. So now I do see that this is a good opportunity, really, while everyone's worried about trade and I know China threatened to s- stop supplying um, certain countries at some point. It's a good opportunity to clean clean this up to the point where you, we can produce them anywhere. Because I mean, despite the name, they're not rare. They're they're everywhere, right? Every, every country probably has the capability to to produce some if they were happy to, you know, make it work within the environmental constraints. So yeah, I think it's going to be an opportunity, and I, I think it's past time that <laughs> that we you know recognize the reality of these critical minerals and you know started to bring them into the twenty first century. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, we've obviously had supply chain issues uh, this past year with COVID. And I, I don't know that, that, you know, what the source of all of those is, but, you know, like the, the chip and the semiconductor shortage has really hurt the auto industry in general. And I think that's probably been maybe the pinch that a lot of companies have needed to say, well, hey, we, we probably need to evaluate some of the other supply chain, you know, items that could potentially bite us in the future, whether it's five, 10 years down the road and start to get some of that infrastructure created because obviously mining operations are complicated right and like you said getting something from one country that might not be friendly or maybe they're friendly with us today but might not be friendly tomorrow you know you can't necessarily predict those foreign relations and if they're to break down you know what happens to a company and what happens to a supply chain so yeah i think that i think this makes a lot of sense i think both of you put brought up really good points that it's uh this is a really important future forecasting event because the whole electric car and you know, these nacelles, they require so many new materials that we didn't need quite en masse um, in, in previous years. So moving on to other uh, gigantic operations, the world's longest uh, undersea electric cable, uh, Britain's national grid, it, their North Sea Link is now up and running. And this is, a, this is 450 miles underwater, and it literally breaks my brain thinking about how we humans did that. Rosemary, how did this happen? This North Sea Link is just an incredible endeavor. It's super impressive, but I, I just don't understand how we humans pulled this off. Uh, I don't know. I guess I'm not so surprised because it's more of like an incremental thing. You know, someone, people have been installing subsea cables and um, gradually getting longer. They're gradually getting um, thicker. Um, so what actually stuck out to me about this one is that this is the currently the world's longest um, 724 kilometers for those who don't. <laughs> don't speak US units. And I know that the Sun Cable project that they're planning, I'm keeping an eye on this one, this Australian one that connects Darwin to Singapore. Um, and that's eventually, or the plan is that that's going to be a 3.2 gigawatt cable. And it, the under the subsea portion of that is 4,200 kilometers long, or that's its current length. It's kind of gradually getting longer as they survey the seafloor more and find, you know, like a realistic path rather than just drawing a straight line on a map. So yeah, this long current longest one, it didn't shock me in its um in its length so much as really highlight how huge the future future plans are and you know maybe make me question whether or not this is something that's likely to to happen in the near term that we can, you know, just, you know, all of a sudden go five times longer. So yeah, but I think the potential, I mean, we need way more of these um, as we get more variable renewables. You need to connect connect up different geographies where, you know, the, um, well, in Norway it's good because they've got so much hydro, which you can control when you um, start and stop it. But, you know, even connecting areas with different wind systems um, east to west to get, you know, a longer duration of, of solar, that sort of thing. I think we're going to need a lot more of it. So it is really good to see see progress happening. Alan, what are some of the electrical like impedance? I'm sure there's like lots of factors involved. I mean, you know, you have a cable that stretches <laughs> yeah. across your house to your stereo system and you have to make sure you have the right, you know, gauge of wire to 
to properly power your speakers just, uh, you know, 25 feet across your living room. I mean, how do they pull this off, right. you know, a 4,000-kilometer cable, this 700-kilometer cable? See that, Rosemary? I'm sticking to kilometers <laughs> yeah. for the moment. Um, I, I spoil you for the rest of the world. Um, Alan, how, I mean, how do they engineer this so that they don't lose so much current? Um, I mean, is this just like the size of a tree trunk? Yeah, it's going to be pretty massive uh, to avoid the losses that would automatically occur here. So there's really two ways to transmit power today. High voltage AC, which is the way we've been doing since the early 1900s when Tesla came around. Tesla, Tesla, as in Tesla, the inventor, and Westinghouse uh, started uh, transformers and high voltage transmission lines. That's the that's the simplest way. And then the, obviously the newest way is what we're doing on, on some of these offshore wind turbines, which is high voltage DC. Which because we have the power electronics now we can we can do that. So uh, I think this cable is an AC cable. The the the, the issue there's a couple issues you have to deal with here. Obviously loss, obviously voltage, obviously uh, temperature, right? Uh, so you're, you're you're probably using the ocean to cool the cable down a little bit. You can shove more energy into it. So it's kind of going to play a lot of different roles. And when you when you design something like that, if you look back in history of of uh, under undersea cables, it hasn't gone very well for the first couple of generations, and they figure out how to design it. Uh, the hope is here if we're going from the UK to Norway that we obviously are implementing all those things that we've learned. But this is a new territory; it really is, and I, I think this is probably the first of many. But you know, technology-wise, uh, the concept's great. I think the implementation is yet to be determined. Hopefully it works, and I think the UK really wants this to work because they think they need it, uh, and it just opens up a, just a whole bunch of doors for the United Kingdom, which has now separated itself for the most part from the European Union. Uh, it needs partners, right? And it needs power partners in particular. You notice it didn't put a cable over to France. Uh, it's going up north to Norway. So there's a lot of geopolitical aspects of this too. It's not just creating power and sharing power, it's alliances. And so when these play out, the engineering is cool, but I think probably in these particular situations, it's about geopolitics. Well, two points to that. Number one, maybe the next generation of supervillains will like tap into other people's cables and like steal it like you can steal, <laughs> you know, television cable. So stay tuned for that. Yeah. You might need James Bond um, right. in the future. But number two, uh, is there any kind of redundancy for this? So obviously, like if you have a gigantic cable that's powering thousands and thousands of homes and sending all this power, what happens if it just you know, gets off, goes offline. Like something happens. Like obviously these have, we, we reported on a story, you know, months ago that one of the cables had, I don't know if the, the words just severed, but came disconnected. Mm. I mean, this is not yeah. a quick, it's not quick. Just like, Hey, Hey John, just go, just go turn it off, turn it on, plug it back in right. like your router in your, your house. <laughs> um, is there any way to right. install redundancy or is it just have to be super well built and just hope for the best? Both, right? Because that, that situation where they had the broken cable or the exposed cable happened in my state on the shoreline where it goes to Block Island, which is a place where they have like six wind turbines. Um, so they're not actually going very far. You can see the two shores. So it's kind of like Scotland to Northern Ireland. You can kind of see between the two. It's not that far, but they're having problems, right? And I, I think as we start grappling with more and more offshore and we start talking about 15, 16, I see a lot of discussions about 20 megawatt machines at the moment. Man, the engineering going into those cables is massive. And yet you don't hear anything about the design of those cables, right? You hear all about the blades and the nacelles and the generators, but the cables like, ah, like that's, that's easy. No, it's not easy. It's extremely difficult to make those things and make them work properly. So there's a lot of work to go, I think. Well, and going back to my supervillain question, this is a, a serious um you know we've talked about black swan events before and a black swan event is just something that you could have yep. never really seen coming right 9 11 here in the u.s no one would yep. have ever guessed terrorists would hijack planes and fly them into to buildings right um does that, is anyone thinking about protecting these cables you know say 10 years from now again there's you know whether you know some bad actor country decides hey we want to put a lot of europe off the grid so they have a submarine attack that slowly deepen you know deep in the ocean um they go sever 
bunch of key arterial cables. You know, is anyone planning for that? I, obviously, I know you don't, neither of you know the answer to that, nor does, nor do I, but um, is it, you wonder if anyone's planning for those kind of things, or if you're just assuming, ah, no one would ever do that, but no one would have seen all these cyber attacks mm-hmm. coming either five years ago, right? So it's our new, norm, right. it's our new, I, our new I, I normal. Think- and you wonder about some of this infrastructure, the fact that it is just hanging out at the bottom of the ocean. It's not like they can have, you know, it's not like it's uh, can it be protected by guards. It's the bottom of the ocean. So you send a submarine down there and right. it's exposed. I don't know. Rosemary, what do you think? Uh, and I think definitely people, it's too obvious that no one has thought of this, right? So you're going to have to plan your whole electricity system around the, the knowledge that some you know, at some point this is going to drop out without warning and may take a while to, um, to fix. So, I mean, the, I, I, sorry, I keep on hijacking the conversation back to the sun cable, but I know that the plan is that that will supply, um, originally it was 20% of Singapore's power, but I was just on the website now and now they're saying 15%. Um, it, it seems like too much, you know, it, it sounds instinctively like you can't have that huge chunk of your, your power coming from something that could drop out for months um, without warning. So they're going to need anyone that's relying on a large chunk of the electricity from um, a subsea cable is going to want to have a lot of redundancy and maybe a lot of storage. I, I'm not sure exactly how they'll do it, but for sure it's too obvious that it just didn't occur to anyone and that they'll be just really surprised when it happens the first time. <laughs> yeah. Whether nefarious or not, you, like you said, you have to hedge your bet. And, and I think the the pandemic with COVID was a an interesting wake up for a lot of people financially, which is like, you know, in the U.S. at least, and it's probably around the world, people say, well, you know, get a good stable job and a paycheck. But if your one stable job pays all of your bills, and if you're, you don't have a lot of money left over month to month, if you lose that job, you're in trouble financially really quick, right? And I think a lot of people learned that where they have, you know, a side hustle or a second, a small second income, something to say, okay, if I get let go, if something unexpected happens, I still have X amount of income that I can live off of for a little while. And I think that's that was to your point about, you don't want to you don't want to power the entire country by one cable because if that cable is compromised you're in big trouble um yeah i mean alan i mean obviously it doesn't seem like there can be any like physical barrier here to prevent this but uh, what's your take on it well it's a it's exactly like what's happening in europe right now with the russian pipelines right that (laughs) russia is holding the most some significant part of europe germany in particular hostage and you just don't want that situation. And Germany obviously uh, is trying to unwind that. I, I don't know if everybody saw the news. I think it was today or yesterday where uh, Russia would like to send oil their way or, or natural gas. I forget which one it was. It's probably natural gas to Germany through the new pipeline. And they wanted uh, approval. You know, can we use this new pipeline? Let us use a new pipeline. And and Germany's like, well, I'm not sure that's a great idea long term. Maybe we ought to wait a little bit. So there's, there's a... a there is so much to energy and how it plays into the world economic condition. Yeah. It's just like you guys both said, it it's, seems complicated and having lots of different sources that can be flipped on and alliances that all seems pretty critical to have that support network to keep everything up and running. So we're going to transition now to our interview with Morton Hanberg, who is the chief blade specialist from Wind Power Lab. He's a mechanical engineer by trade, uh, has worked in the past as a test and qualification engineer for Siemens Wind Power, and as a blade integrity specialist for Dong Energy, among others. So really knowledgeable guy. We're really excited to have him. So without further ado, we're going to take you to our conversation with Morton Hanberg. Let's get let's get down to it. So we want to talk to you a bunch today about about blade maintenance. Um, you know, and, and prior to 2014, blades were sold kind of as this this maintenance free component. But this this I think idea has changed a lot. Um, and it seems like there's four big areas that really need to be considered if if a company is going to try to maintain their blades long term because they're not they're not maintenance free, right? Um, so can you speak a little bit to the kind of the four big components of, of blade maintenance? Yeah, but also uh, I think it's also important to understand that earlier blades were designed a lot more uh, conservatively. So they had a much higher, you know, resilience towards uh, erosion that we're going to dive into and also fatigue. 
lightning would still have been an issue. But but uh, when the blade started to grow a lot longer, then uh, then a lot of then, then some of the issues that we're dealing with today they started to to accelerate and become much more. Uh, exposed and also it needed to be taken into account. So that was why that earlier it was considered more of a maintenance-free uh, product. Um, but if we look at look at what needs to go into uh, uh, in, into a maintenance plan, then you need to know your blades. You need to know what kind of blade type you have because they are not designed equally. Uh, there are different design uh, modes out there that affect what kind of wear mechanisms you're looking at. And then you need to look into what kind of uh, defect, uh, what your defect areas are. And the, and the key ones are erosion, lightning, and fatigue. So if you know those, those four things, and that ties into what kind of climate conditions you have, then you have a really good uh, understanding about what kind of blade and what conditions you have, and that will build your maintenance plan. Okay, so you kind of build things around erosion, fatigue, lightning, and, and climate. And of course, like you said, climate kind of interacts with, with all three of those. Um, so when we talk about a maintenance plan, like we've talked about insurance a bunch on the show um, I mean, is that something that, you know, insurance companies are really pushing or is this just like the industry as a whole has realized, hey, we need to do more proactively rather than just reacting when, you know, we've got a major problem? It's something that's being mentioned, um, but it's not something that they are actively saying that your premiums will get lower if you have a maintenance plan. But I think, again, as the blades, uh, the larger turbines, they become uh, they, they have more years in operation, you start to see these defects go coming again and again. And then at some point, I think that uh, the insurance company will uh, look more favorable, fa favorable to an owner who has a maintenance strategy that uh, shows that they are proactively inspecting, doing repairs to reduce uh, negative effects from fatigue and uh, lightning. And it's kind of like, um, you know, at some point will be like, you know, if you have a house and you don't lock the door, but you have a but you have a break in the steel a bunch of stuff. The insurance company might they they will probably reimburse you for that. But when it happens four, five, six, and seven times, the same thing, they'll start to say, okay, if you don't lock your doors, then uh, yeah, yeah. you know we, we we're not covering it. And I think we'll see we'll, we will see the same uh, the same things with with uh, with with, with, uh, with blades and turbines that if an insurance company can see that the that the owner or operator is simply not taking care of the asset, then their premiums go will go up or they'll simply remove the, the insurance and we'll have to find it in another place. You mentioned the home inspection and or the home insurance. And so this to me, especially if assets are changing hands. So, you know, if a wind farm sell, is sold to a different operator, um, I assume they're going to do a lot of inspection. Are they going to start from scratch? I mean, it, it seems like that kind of that kind of situation, like a home inspection, but for the wind farm for all the blades would, would seem to make sense as, you know, like, again, you're selling this big asset and re-upping re the insurance, all that sort of stuff, starting fresh. Um, I mean, do you see that a lot? Is that kind of a decent analogy if, if assets are, are, are being sold? No, that is that is very common. So, I mean, it's, uh, I would say I don't think it goes out, it goes on without uh, having some sort of inspection when the assets are changing hands. And it's both when it goes from one operator to another, there would be a, a due diligence of what is the condition of the assets. So they want to know what, what they're actually taking over. And do they need to do something uh, when they're taking over the new asset? Uh, and the same with the insurance company. If the policy changes um, within the insurance uh, company or from one insurance company to another, it's also very common practice to do a due diligence of it. Um, and blades have not been the ones with the most focus uh, in the past, but but we see that uh, that it's actually something that is uh, that is a high target on on, on these uh, on these surveys when when they're be, being done because there is a lot there's a lot more knowledge now on how lightning fatigue and erosion can affect the assets, uh, and that means a lot when when an asset is 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 being being, being transferred. Well, and especially today, we're talking about much bigger blades than in the past, right? So if it was a, a forty meter blade that's not going to be nearly as expensive as, you know, a 107 meter blade or something like that today. And obviously times three. So I think this, it seems like the stakes are a lot higher um, for when these assets transfer hands, you know, and this reminds me, like, I remember one of my, the first cars, um, you know, I bought as a, as a high schooler. I just remember feeling at ease when we went to the seller and he's like, do you want my records of the oil changes? Like he had changed the oil religiously every 3000 miles. And you know, it made me feel at ease. Like, yeah, okay, well, this car has been well taken care of, even though it had higher mileage. Um, and I think people probably want to see that same thing, especially when these are, you know, obviously multi multi million dollar transactions. 
So I, I think one of the things that we haven't talked much about on the show is, is blade fatigue. And I know that's something, um, you know, you guys talk a lot about at Windpower Lab. Um, so what do people need to know about fatigue? Because obviously erosion gets a lot of press. Uh, lightning gets a lot of press. Um, but, but tell us, give us, give us a, give us an overview first of, of what we need to know about blade fatigue. Well, it's, it's a very, very broad area to start with. So, so, uh, I mean, we, we could start a PhD course, uh, 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 right here, right now, uh, on fatigue alone, but I'll, I'll try and cover the, the basics. So, um, so as you know, uh, a, a blade is being continuously exposed to, uh, when it, when it, uh, when the turbine ro rotates, it's experiencing uh, fatigue loads because it switches between tension and compression continuously during the rotation. And um, what you can imagine is that this is the blade, and then it would continuously just bend upwards, and uh, you know, uh, continuously in in lo in, a, in a lot of cycles. And each of these cycles adds to the uh, to total fatigue count, which is called a rainflow count where a, a certain amount of fatigue load will uh, then add X, uh, will reduce the blade's lifetime with X amount, uh, uh, with Y amount. And um, there is something called SN curves, uh, where if, um, if you have a component that is experiencing a certain amount of loads at a certain, uh, a, a certain amount of times, the, then it will fail. Um, but if you increase that load, uh, then the, if the amount of lifetime will, uh, will, will be reduced, not equal to the load increase, but, but, uh, but exponential. So from one to zero point, from some to 1.1 kilos, that, uh, 10% load increase can have, um, just, uh, as a hypothetical, a hundred percent decrease in lifetime. So if a one kilo means 20 years of lifetime, then a 1.1 increase can actually then reduce that to 10 years. This is just a hypothetical, but but it kind of shows to the to the nature of uh, how fatigue loads, how aggressive it can actually be if you if you just change those those loads because it has it has a really high impact, and that also ties into icing conditions. Uh, if you start to see icing loads, then if you're not controlling the turbine in the right way, either by curtailing or stopping it due to these ice loads, you can actually experience early life fatigue issues uh, because this ice mass is located. Uh, at the tip of the blade, uh, where the the it will add the most momentum uh, to it, so that that will have a, a very high effect on on fatigue uh, on fatigue issues, and we'd actually see that that we can tie ice uh, ice buildup into actual fatigue damages. Okay, so that's a, a pretty big um, it's a pretty big reason to potentially have maybe some de-icing solution, whether it's, I mean, I know there's a lot of different ones on the, on the market, Eologics, you know, we had them on the show, they have a, you know, an ice sensor. Um, you know, do you recommend then someone, how, how are they going to measure that so quickly where they can say, okay, we have enough ice where we definitely need to shut these down and get them cleaned off before we go again? Because you said like that 1% increase in fatigue could have a, a tenfold decrease in lifetime. So it seems like the stakes are pretty high. Again, it, it depends very much on what kind of blade type you have, because some blade types will have higher load capacity. Others will have a lower that all. So that that really depends on what how conservative the blade is uh, is made and what control mechanism. So, I would definitely argue that uh, that control should be in place and also load monitoring of the blades. And not all all blades have that. So there will be some uh, natural frequency measurement, but uh, that can that will detect uh, this the, the, this change. But the big question is. Is it that is that too late? Uh, have enough icing actually build up that will then uh, increase the, these loads to reduce the, the the lifetime of the blade. So, Martin, when we talk about fatigue, there's a a number of different modes of fatigue, and as the blades have gotten longer, obviously they get heavier, and obviously they also get faster tip speeds. So, just a lot more forces involved. What kind of fatigue failures are you seeing in the field right now? So uh, so a lot of what we're seeing are uh, longitudinal cracks uh, along the uh, um, along the trailing edge. Um, that's a quite common one. Um, we also see some um, uh, uh, trailing edge cracks closer to the tip, leading edge longitudinal cracks, and those are the most common one very directly related uh, to fatigue because it, it works in the uh, in the longitudinal direction of the blade. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, but the but the big thing is that if these fatigue cracks are not detected, they will then start to create radial or transverse cracks because the uh, because a, a crack allows for degrees of freedom within uh, the blade, and it's unintended degrees of freedom. So that would mean that the crack can move independently, and when it does that, then it actually just accelerates. Uh, and when it's reached a certain point where it can start to to open and close, uh, then then you'll start to see cracks going uh, uh, perpendicular to the longitudinal crack. Often uh, fatigue defects also develop because of um, of uh, imperfections in the blade. This is still a handcraft. Uh, they haven't been automatically produced yet. Yes, uh, some use RTM processes uh, to to cast the blades, but all of the glass is still more or less uh, handled uh, or to agree degree handled by by people laying in the grass uh, in in the glass. So there is a uh, there is a risk of of these. Most of them are then being detected by the QA personnel at the factory. They're actually quite good at this, but sometimes something slips through the cracks. And um, one of the critical ones is a wrinkle. And um, if you look at a piece of paper like this, if it's stretched out, this is a this is a good laminate uh, uh, because the UD fibers they can they can hold a lot of uh, tension and compression. Um, so so the laminate is working as it should. But then if it's folded like this. Then, when the blade is is in operation and starts and tries to uh, and 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 uh, uh, this wrinkle here experiencing uh, is experiencing tension and compression, it will it will try to to stretch out. But because it's cast in, uh, then then it, it's it's stuck in place, and that means that and then that that means that it has very low uh, very low low load capacity, and then that that will lead to a very early life fatigue development. And these can be uh, some of them are in the surface laminates. Doesn't have a major a major uh, effect. So, if anyone goes after this podcast and, and detects a small fold in the surface of the laminate, doesn't mean that there is a critical issue, um, because it's often it's within when it's inside the UDs uh, that they become really structural, especially if they're if they are transverse to the blade direction, then they are critical. But then often you can't see them, but you can see the effect of them. Um, and that's also why I would always argue when you're doing inspections, do internal inspections because fatigue damages, if they are structurally, if they are structurally critical, they will often be visible from the inside first. When you see them from the outside, there is. Uh, it doesn't mean that this is the this is the case every time, but there is a high risk that it, then it's too late, and then you need to take the blade down, do a repair, or maybe even replace it. So inside the blade is a little bit of a of a new uh, inspection technology, right? So we, we used to just put people on ropes and we would inspect the outside and we'd look for cracks and split trailing edges and those sort of things. But it can be very hard because the coatings on the blade can be very thick and, and may has been repainted once or twice. And so it's it's sort of hard to detect those those beginning problems. So measuring inside because there's no coatings, uh, you can actually see a little bit more. What are the technologies used today to look inside a blade and try to see those structural issues? So uh, you can still send, us, um, uh, send in a guy uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, inspect in, in, the, uh, in, in the chambers. Um, and he would go in and then look for any uh, anomaly. And structural issues inside the blade is actually very, very, very easy to detect because when you have a crack or you have a delamination, the the coloring will change from uh, from olive green uh, to milky white. Um, sometimes we see that then dry fibers are also being uh, in, being being uh, detected and categorized as fatigue defects. That's not necessarily the case, and but if you see a polygonic shape inside your blades, you have, it's very likely you have a delamination. And if you see an, an open tear with white sides and loose fibers sticking up, you have a major crack. Uh, that, 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 that's so, so it's quite easy to find these uh, on the inside, actually. That doesn't mean that uh, you can see everything, because uh, if it's subsurface or very close to the surface that started, you might not see it because of the, 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 uh, the light deflection. And you still have the coating on the outside. So it's easy to see the things that start on the inside um, of the blade. And, and that is the majority of the structural issues. We see that. So if you have something in the web or the, or the box beam, uh, the spar cap, or in the shell laminates, um, then, then, uh, then it would be a very easy to detect. 
it would only be for the inner third of the blade. If you want to go further out, you would need a robot crawler or a camera that you can you can hoist down through the blade. Um, but it, that's unless we have a suspicion, that's really something I recommend because all critical uh, issues that we see and that are common, they're within the first third of the blade. And why is that? And that's it's great you covered that because I was actually just going to ask, like, what kind of tech do they need to do this inspection inside the blade? Because I know obviously they're getting bigger and bigger. We're now... Some of these new blades, you know, you can stand up and reach up and not touch the other side of it, but, you know, they get pretty narrow as they go. So why a why the first third only? Um, is that only where you detect these typically? And then what other technology do your do your techs need to take in there with them? Well, I mean, you can use a drone that is suitable for internal inspections or, or a guy, but they would reach more or less the same area. Uh, the guy, when he reaches the inner third, he would get into very confined space. And I've been there. It's not fun uh, to yeah, get to terrifying. past the inner third. Uh, so, uh, um, but it's simply because, I mean, and even the inner third is still more than you need because it's, uh, it's the blade root that is critical. It's the start of the web uh, that is critical. And it's the transition zone. And then the, uh, the shoulder area. That is where the majority of, of all the loads are. Uh, the, 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 the high loads, um, they, they are centered around this area because, you know, that, that's where you get the most, that's where you have the highest momentum. And it's also where the blade is transitioning the load from the web back in, into the uh, root and shell laminate. That's also why it's called the transition area. And, and so any, uh, any imperfection or anywhere that, that will show in that area first. So if you have an issue on the blade, then that is the, that is the critical area. And the further out you get on the blade, the less load, load you'll have. Um, and that doesn't mean you can't have fatigue damages. You certainly can, um, but often they would be less critical. So, because if you have a fatigue damage in the inner in the in the inner section of the of the blade, that can lead to a blade, a blade failure quite fast if you if you don't act on it and you don't don't detect it. Martin, what is what is the effect of fatigue on the? adhesive joints, the bonnet joints, not just the, the fiberglass structure comp composite there. Do the, do the bonded joints also have fatigue limits and, and uh, accelerated fatigue over time? Yes. Um, if the, uh, in most cases, we see that the adhesive joints are uh, often stronger than the laminates. So it wouldn't be the adhesive joint that fails. It would be the surrounding laminate. Um, when we see uh, adhesive joint failure, then it's because of adhesive failure. Uh, it's actually quite rare that we see cohesive or fiber tear failure as, a, as an effect on the adhesive joint. Um, so that is the main problem. It's still a fatigue issue, but it's, it's, right. it's being guided by uh, poor adhesion. So back to a manufacturing error. So the adhesive joints in itself, I'm not as worried about unless you have missing adhesive because we know that is an issue, or you have insufficient yep. uh, main mechanical bonding between the adhesive and the shell or, 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 or the web. So when you walk up to a blade, because Martin, you're, you're sort of like a, a blade whisperer, right? So you can, you can, you've been around blades enough that you, you see all the variety of things that's happened to blades, and you know the, the different manufacturers, and you're just familiar with all the, the deficiencies and the, the intricacies of each one of them. So when you walk up to a blade, what are you looking for? And how, how, how fast can you say, hey, that blade has an issue, that one really doesn't? What is that, what is that like? You see it when you walk into the blade because, again, uh, these uh, structural damage is very easy to detect. Um, yeah. And uh, the, way you would, um, the way you would recognize the failure is by looking at uh, how the failure pattern is. So, again, if you see a separation between the web and the uh, and the shell in the adhesive joint, then you would look at an adhesive failure. If you look at a, a transverse crack over the uh, over the over the, the shell, you would look at a wrinkle. So a lot of these damages, because we've seen so many things over the years, we instinctively almost know that okay, this is actually this is uh, this is the reason why. If we see longitudinal cracks, uh, then we would go into the. In, in, into the locks and look at how the blade has been, been operated. Uh, and if we see uh, long stretches of uh, parallel lines, uh, we would look for emergency stops. So there's a lot of uh, factors there. There's a whole guideline that we're actually building around what, what, 
what damage, uh, how, how the damage uh, appearances and how that relates into, uh, into the fatigue damages. So I don't know if any of you are mushroom hunters um, or ever try to open a mushroom book, but if you do, you would get this sort of guide that, okay, does it have a red hat? Is it a white stock? We're trying to do the same thing around, around blade damages, essentially, because it's, it is uh, it is a multi-layer uh, uh, identification that, that we're doing. And sure. we start out by looking at what kind of blade type uh, do we have? Uh, how is it structured? What kind of failure modes can we then have? Because of if, if it's, is it a pull-truded beam? Is it a dual share web? Uh, is it structural versus non-structural shells? All of that. And when you know the major OEMs and you know the, the design, you can also then start to derive what kind of failure modes that are, um, that are relevant. I like the analogy because I think eating fiberglass is probably just as deadly as eating random, <laughs> random mushrooms in the forest. I don't recommend it. Yeah, you can't, no. you can't just eat more than a handful of random mushrooms in the forest where you just get a poisonous one and, and that's the end of you. So, so this is yeah. a great analogy. So, Morton, have you ever walked into a facility seen a blade and said shut that turbine down right now because uh, it just yes uh, i used to work as an operator an operational engineer uh for a major utility yeah. and uh, then i would have inspections uh coming in and then i would look at the at the inspection reports and then okay then there was okay this this damage is is around this uh, this critical area here it's longitudinal transverse they would call up the side man and say we need to shut the 044 down and then the site manager would then respond to me, okay, this is uh, this is that many grants per, per day. Are you sure? So I would always get, right. the, get the costs uh, just to verify what, how certain I actually was. And um, so I, I have I have done that a few few times, uh, said that, okay, shut this down right now. Wow. Um, yeah. And are most of these... That's amazing. And are most of these structural damages that you'll find, are they most, mostly repairable? Or, I mean, how, how far along do they have to get before it's like, hey, we just need a... We just need a new blade. I mean, there is a there there is a point in time when the repair exceeds uh, the the cost of the blade, essentially, T because totaled, um, so to speak. Whenever you need to repair beam laminate or a structural shell, then um, then you need to have an overlap between each layer, and that would mean that a crack that if it goes through or a delamination if it goes through in enough layers, then um, in, in some cases, you would use 50 millimeters uh, per layer in each side. So that would mean that you would actually extend it by 100 millimeters for each layer. Right. And if you have that to do that for 20 or 30 or 40 layers, some blades even have 50 layers if we're back to some of the older conservatives, then a, a relatively small damage would actually require a repair that could, be, uh, that could be four or five or six meters long, even if it's only in a relatively small area. But that is because of the the direction of the crack and the number of layers that it that it's impacting mm. and then we start to look into okay the cost and the downtime of the turbine is that does that really correspond uh, to the to the value of this blade but then when you start mm. to go into that uh, direction then um does the new blade will that fit and do you then need three blades um and there are cases where the repair is simply too risky because it's affecting too large an area of the of the of, of the of the structural parts of the blade that uh, the risk of quick of the repair being more problematic than the damage itself then 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 you wouldn't repair it then you would just say okay we need to replace this there is no way wow um, I've also seen one where uh, a crane moved a bit too close to the turbine and they didn't shut down the turbine and then no kind of one two three uh and then all three blades wow. get had uh, the uh, the tip smashed wow so that there were wow. replacements uh yikes i just wish <laughs> there were videos of all these things i, I don't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> i keep pushing that on every episode like let's get video everywhere so when these yeah. incredible well, calamities um, happen we can see them I mean, if you dive enough into it, I mean, recently you guys had a uh, had a, had an episode where you discussed a train running through a blade. Yeah. So right. yeah, a lot of uh, different things happens to the blade out there. I play blades out there. Yeah. Um, so lucky no one was hurt in that one. Jeez. Oh, yes. That was crazy. Oh. That, yeah. yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. So um, when, an, say there's a, an operator listening to this podcast, and like, okay, we, we should check out the fatigue of our, our blades. Uh, I mean, how how often does someone need to inspect this? I mean, is there any warning signs that they would see from the ground or see from 
a monitoring system? I mean, I mean, is everyone everyone just need to do this every certain amount of years, or what do you, what do you recommend? Well, I I always recommend doing a subset every year because um, inspecting all blades every year is just a huge cost factor, especially when we're talking about offshore. Uh, and onshore, if you're in a remote location and or your turbines are spread out, then it's just a huge cost on you um, to do everything. So what I normally recommend is to do a subset. It can be 10, it can be 20%. Um, so that over a, a period, you actually uh, you actually get through your entire wind farm. And that, uh, that serves several purposes. If we start by just looking at fatigue, that means that if you, within that population, then see a certain amount of fatigue damages of the same type uh, starting to develop, then you know that this would be representative of the remaining part of the wind farm. So let's say you see one damage, uh, one, one fatigue damage. That doesn't really mean a lot. And if you then go in and look at what is the root cause of it, is it fatigue related? Is it production related? Or is it a bird that hit, that hit the turbine, the, the blade? That will tell you a lot about, okay, do we need to expand this? Um, so I would always set up trigger events uh, with my inspection subset and say that if that is exceeded, then I need to do a full 100% inspection. Um, so that's normally the way I would approach it. So don't just do 20% every year or 20, or 10%. Do the 10 or 20 and then look at what did I actually find and what did I learn? Um, what this, what does this tell, this tell me about the current condition of my wind farm? And is this, I, and I assume this is something they would probably do at the same time as like a leading edge erosion inspection. I mean, do they want to, how many of these services would they want to combine all at once just to sort of maximize downtime? So, uh, erosion, you can do at the same time as fatigue. I mean, fatigue, you would also do an equal subset on the inside. Um, but erosion, you really don't need to do a lot because erosion is, uh, is really, really, it, it's, uh, erosion is easy to handle compared to the others because it's predictable. Um, because if you look at 10% of your wind farm, even if you almost only have 10 turbines, and that means one turbine, if you can see a certain amount of erosion on that turbine, then assuming that they've been repaired at the same time, following the same processes, the, the remaining nine, they will look exactly the same. Yeah. So you don't need to do a lot on erosion. Um, and, and there we would normally recommend follow the erosion from the beginning and then when you start to see exposed laminates, then do a repair and select the right uh, leading at repair solution. But it can but it can be tied into the fatigue inspection. You don't need to do anything special. And then I know you're passionate about educating people and helping, uh, you know, operators like get their, their, their own staff, you know, up to speed to be able to do a lot of these themselves. Um, you know, what does an operator need to... Do they, do they need to always outsource someone from this? I mean, can they train their staff to do some of these inspections or, or how can they develop a maintenance plan on their own? Because we've talked about uh, before in previous conversations with you that, you know, not every wind farm is going to be big enough to have a maintenance plan, right? Some are going to be small, but they might say, hey, this is a good thing we should do in the future. So how would you recommend that smaller, um, smaller wind farms or larger you know, if they don't have a maintenance plan for their blades, that they go about getting one and getting their staff trained. They can do something really simple. If you only, if you have, if you're a small owner, uh, a farmer having ten turbines, then if if you then do uh, um, annual or biannual inspection uh, of a subset, and then then look at what is the current condition, maybe then get an expert to do it. Then you would be in good 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 shape anyway, because then you would get. Uh, the accurate um, uh, results and understanding of what is actually going on on my wind farm. If you're a larger operator and you need to look at what is the conditions across crush your portfolio and plan major campaigns, then it makes a lot more sense to then go in and then do an actual maintenance strategy and plan out when do I need to schedule uh, inspections, when do I need to schedule repairs, what kind of OPEX cost am I looking at from uh, fatigue, lightning and erosion over the lifetime of the turbine, of, of the wind farm. And you can do a lot of this if you if you know some of the history of your of your wind turbines. Then you can you can use that to make trend analysis and then make some pretty good predictions. You won't necessarily hit the mark, but you'll be better off than handling everything um, on an ad hoc basis. So for a larger operator, if you if you don't have a maintenance plan, then then you don't have an overview what what your OPEX cost will be. So that is the benefit uh, by doing it in a more structured way. And um, so therefore, I would recommend this, uh, this uh, the differentiation between large and small operators. So Morton, one of the newer technologies on the marketplace is the ping monitoring system, which is an acoustic sensor that actually mounts to the wind turbine base. Yeah. 
Uh, are some of these fatigue cracks detectable because they make noise or leading edges or trailing edges that have split? Do they make enough noise that, that ping can pick those things up? Um, I think for a lot of defects, yes, um, they would have a really good chance because they, they, they change the, um, yeah, the, the airflow over, over the blade because it changes the, how the blade uh, operate, how the blade acts, again, back to the degrees of freedom. So that mm -hmm. would definitely be, be detectable. And um, but it's always difficult, and um, I, I can make an analogy because I also you try to uh, dive a lot in into these from the load sensors, and the load sensors they can pick up a lot of fatigue cracks as well. They can tell you where where they are, and ping have sort of the same issue, but at least they can tell you that you have a fatigue crack. But it doesn't mean that sure. you have a uh, a go golden ticket um, because I've tried uh, digging through finding a five meter long crack at the tip of my, 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 my blade, looking at the natural frequencies, and there was no difference. Nothing could be picked up. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, the ping sensor would, on the other hand, have an easy way to, to detect that because it was quite open, the blade. Uh, so there would have been, <laughs> it would have been very easy. So I think it's about sure. also breaking things being used in combination because I think in, especially for internal yeah. defects, unless you also have an internal acoustic sensor, then those defects would not be possible to pick up with an external sensor. Um, so, so again, I think uh, I think we're back to understanding what kind of problems you actually have on your wind farm, and then designing what kind of monitoring system you have in, in accordance with that, and not sure. just say sure. that one fits all. I I rarely I rarely uh, think that 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 is the way forward. Yeah, that's that's a good perspective. It seems like it's just so complicated, and like you said, for so many different areas of the blade, and so many different things are happening. That that makes sense. So, Morton, uh, one of the cool things you're doing is you're doing a, a two day course for operators to help educate them um, about blades, about maintenance, all that stuff. Can you talk a, a little bit about what you're doing? I think that's that's pretty interesting. I think people in the industry need to know about it. Yes. So uh, so I'm, I'm starting to, to make these uh, these courses, especially tailored to uh, to operators, but also to loss adjusters or uh, subject matter experts or and, uh, independent companies that want to know a bit more about the blades and what's going on behind the blades. And they're we look a lot at what kind of defects do we have out there and then back to how do we uh, accurately identify them um, by, uh, by, by showcasing where on the blade would you find leading edge erosion, where would you see delaminations, where are wrong lighting attachments common, uh, and where would you find voids, chipping, peeling, and so on and so forth. Um, and also dive into what is causing these different defects. Um, because when we look at, for instance, voids, peeling, chipping, they're all called surface defects. They're all being repaired in the same way, but they are very different in, in, in why they actually are there on the blade. So voids come from uh, subsurface uh, air inclusions in, in, the, in the coating or the filler. Uh, peeling comes from, uh, uh, it's, it's called workmanship, but it can, also, it can be both materials, can also be insufficient cleaning or grinding that simply uh, have, uh, have uh, how do you say, have limited the uh, the adherence between the, the filler and the paint, and then we'll just peel off again. Um, and then we have chipping. Uh, that is a um, an added effect to voids or erosion where you already have an exposed area, and then due to environmental wear, this defect will, will continue to chip off of the void or the erosion and accelerate this defect. So they're all considered surface defects, and often they are being mistaken with each other. Um, but but we try to, to dive into why what actually causes these and how do you differentiate between them. And we do the same for cracks, delaminations, uh, and and all sorts of defects, uh, both externally and internally. Um, and we also go into the more operational part. So what well, what do you need to consider around your environmental conditions that will help you identify when a leading edge erosion solution you should use and where you need leading edge erosion uh, protection. So that is just a small <laughs> snippet of well, what, what I dive into. And uh, yeah, I can talk for a lot of hours on this uh, subject here. So, uh, <laughs> And is that something people can sign up for on the web or how do they get in touch with you about that if they're interested? So they can, they can uh, contact me uh, or my colleagues directly or they can also contact us uh, through our website and then uh, yeah, request uh, some additional information about our training courses. Well, that's awesome. Uh, so is there anywhere else that uh, people can follow up with you and WindPower Lab on the web? So um, so we have a LinkedIn page uh, where we regularly update on our uh, activities and where we are where we are active and what, what services uh, that, that we're focusing on and promoting. 
Um, we also have a website where the where you can learn a lot about our uh, and our assessment and repair recommendation services, our root cause analysis, and also our training courses. So there, um, whatever problem you would have within Blades, uh, then you can go and 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 find a, a solution and, and contact us. And um, if you if you don't know what uh, if you have a problem but you don't know what what, what service that would that would fit it, also just contact us and uh, let's have a talk about it um that that's that's always an option um we're more than happy to talk to the operators and the service providers uh, within the industry and also just uh, just trying on uh, trying to understand the uh, the problems they have from their perspective and then see if we have a service that fit them or otherwise just give them a friendly advice awesome well morton thank you so much for coming on the show we really appreciate it likewise it was really really, really good it's good to be here All right. Well, again, we want to thank our guest, Morton Hanberg, for coming on, talking with us about blade fatigue issues. Uh, again, be sure to follow up with him in the show notes of this podcast. You can easily find links to all to get in touch with him personally and the company. And again, what they're doing is cool with the educational aspect of it. Um, you know, again, with all the big OEMs, keeping a lot of their trade secrets, trade secrets close to the vest, which is understandable. There's not as much knowledge flowing around. So if you need to learn uh, more about how to maintain your assets or you just want to learn more um, about, you know, what they know, then definitely check them out and send them a message through the show notes below. So moving on, um, Vestas is installing their V236 15 megawatt uh, wind turbine prototype that was announced earlier this year at the Osterlid uh, National Test Center in Denmark. So, and this is kind of sort of coinciding with an article, a good uh, article on the BBC about, um, you know, just how fast these wind turbines are getting pushed bigger and bigger, and bigger, right? So, uh, Ming Yang, Vestas, GE, Siemens Gamesa, they've all put out bigger, bigger turbines this year, the HAL 8X, the 14222, um, you know, here the Vestas 15 megawatt version. And one of their uh, higher ups, uh, Ariel Nass, who's the head of offshore product market strategy at Vestas, uh, here's a quick quote from her. She said, you know, it's happening quicker than we would wish in a sense. We need to make sure it's a sustainable race for everyone in the industry, referring to the, you know, the race for bigger um, megawatt outputs. And so, Rosemary, I'll throw this to you first. I mean, she's pointing out the need for bigger harbors, bigger equipment, bigger jack of vessels, insulation vessels, all this stuff. And that it, it, you know, it might be a little bit advantageous, it sounds like, to slow down a bit and let some of the infrastructure catch up. Yeah, I thought it was really weird that, um, you know, Vestas are one of the key participants in, in this race to get bigger wind turbines. And then we have someone from the company saying that it's, you know, against their will. It does, it doesn't really, I don't know. It's not, it's not the best marketing maybe for their, their new huge wind turbine. And it doesn't give me um, a lot of confidence that the company is really behind the strategy. So I found that part of it really strange. Um, and I also do think that, you know, that's the nature of, um, you know, participating in a competitive market that, you know, whoever can supply what the customers want the fastest is is going to have a competitive ad advantage. So um, I kind of I, I agree, and it's definitely very hard as an engineer for these companies. And every time you would get another uh, announcement like this of you know a new huge longer blade or some other massive technology shakeup, engineers would all be rolling their eyes, complaining, and um, yeah, talking about it in the canteen. But at the same time, you you know, like, you know, that that's your job, right. To, to make the, the best wind turbine that is what customers want. So I, uh, I, it's uncomfortable, but you know, you become an engineer because you want to solve problems, right. You don't, you don't become an engineer because you want to keep on doing everything the same for a long time. So, um, yeah, well, that's <laughs> yeah. Most, most engineers or a lot of engineers do that anyway. Some maybe just want a cushy job, but <laughs> it's not <Yeah>. as fun. <laughs> well, I kind of read this article and, and wondered if it's kind of like, you know, you have two boxers in the ring and they're both like battling it out. And then they both kind of look at each other and like, do we want to keep going? Like, we've already gone 10 rounds. Like, do you just want to like call it a draw now? You know what I mean? Like, that was kind of how I read it because you need one, one of you to like sort of extend that olive branch to say like, we've gone hard enough. Maybe we can back off just a little bit and like let a, you know, take a breather. Um, I don't know, Alan, what's your perspective on this? 
Well, I, I think they're getting driven by forces outside of Europe, actually. In the United States, I think what's happening is they're, the Chinese and Goldwind and some others are, are really pushing the envelope, uh, trying to gain market share. And in that competitive environment, I, I don't even know what to call it competitive in a sense, because I, I feel like there's the EU and the United States are, are going to be screaming about dumping like there was with steel a couple of years ago, that, that the, the Chinese offerings are going to be so low priced or so, so much below what the market would typically provide that the GEs, Investus, and everybody else are really going to start complaining. The problem they're in right now is that they have to. They don't. They don't really have a choice. Uh, so as China produces bigger wind turbines, they're forced to produce bigger wind turbines. The customers are clamoring for them. And what happens in those conference rooms is Investus walks in and pitches. Uh, brand new wind turbine concept because they don't even have any hardware at the time. Uh, and so we can get to 16 megawatts uh, and the customer goes, that's awesome. But my Chinese provider can do it for half the price you can. So guess what? I'm going to choose a Chinese provider. And that's where I think the real disconnect starts to happen is the, the, the customer base and the the European and U.S. manufacturers are really getting into a bind here, and something's got to give. In the U.S., it's probably the United States is going to just outlaw certain types of Chinese wind turbines. I think that will happen. I think that'll happen in Europe at some point, too. So they'll just take it off the marketplace so the Vestas and the Siemens Gamesas can be profitable, because otherwise, I think they're in a world of hurt competitively. Yes, I just wanted to add this, the new Vestas wind turbine that they've announced, they're installing the prototype, 15 megawatt prototype in um, Erstil. The cool thing about that is this, um, it's actually a, a test wind farm that I visited in my, my first ever YouTube video. So I think the coolest part of this announcement is that this is open <laughs> to the public. So <laughs> anyone who is a, a wind turbine fan could actually show up and watch them install it and, um, yeah, and, and check it out afterwards. I mean, it'll be around for a long time. So, I mean, from a safe distance, I don't think they're going to let you, you know, on the construction site, but I, that's what piqued my interest when I, I saw I saw this announcement. I'm like, oh, I gotta gotta get back to Denmark <laughs> so I can watch the installation. <laughs> yeah, I picture like people carving their names into the bottom of like a tree trunk. Like Dan loves <laughs> oh, renewable energy oh, in the bottom of the, no, of the, the tower. No. <laughs> but no, that's pretty cool. If it's open to the public, well, we expect to see a full scoop on uh, your YouTube channel. Yeah, I just gotta so get gotta get, get back get over your to drones out, get to them Denmark. going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, so uh, finally on the docket today, um, Orbital Marine, which is the manufacturer of the Orbital O2, is the two megawatt, very cool, I'm impressed with it, uh, tidal power generator that they launched uh, earlier this year. They're heading a consortium trying to essentially get to a floating tidal energy, this is a quote, floating tidal energy, wind, wind generation, grid export, battery storage, and green hydrogen production um, system. So... Um, that's a lot of things. Rosemary, uh, is that a little little ambitious or do you think this is something that could come to fruition? Well, I mean, it's it's definitely ambitious and I don't know if I, it could, it could come to fruition. I don't know if I would want to bet on the likelihood of that happening. It's not like this is the first time that anybody has um, planned, you know, some multi renewable energy hub that includes ocean energy. I, I think there's also one that's been announced recently in Australia that uses wave, wave power from um, Bombora. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's good to see some, some continuing interest in ocean energy. This one's tidal, and I think there's still there's still so much potential left in the ocean that we haven't figured out how to tap. Um, one thing I noticed about this is it's a, you know it's a big it's a big device. It's two megawatts, right? That's that's big for for tidal. Um, I I tend to think that in the ocean, especially with wave energy. Companies have gone too big too fast and you often see them run out of money before they um, have managed to actually test the, the 
feasibility of that technology you really often see some you know like just some regular maintenance things or the, the cable is breaking or you know some other component that could be easily redesigned um broke they ran out of money and it, it all ended and i think we've seen dozens of examples of of that over the years whereas if you'd seen you know one company try a dozen times you would have a mature technology by now so um i'm a little bit interested in in that aspect of it but let's hope that they've got um one time when i did a video i interviewed a couple of wave energy researchers and they said the most important thing for a wave energy project is that you have patient money from your investors and so i hope that this project has patient money so that they can overcome those little problems that you have in technology development. I mean, you're always going to have failures and surprises. That's that's the, the whole point of of trying it out for the first time. So I hope they've got the money to ride that out and, you know, finally, finally get this to go into the mainstream because that would be really cool and a really good addition to, you know, the renewable energy system. It's still a lot of development to go. And I th I think that if if they can get on it in the next two years, I think they got a chance to, break over that wave, so to speak, and kind of ride some of the financial positive upsides of it. But if not, it, it most likely will be dead because, as we just talked about, as wind turbines get bigger and bigger and bigger, tidal just gets smaller and smaller and smaller as a player. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode of the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Want to thank our want to thank again our guest, Morton Hanberg from Wind Power Lab. Again, uh, follow up with him in the show notes of this podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and leave us a review. It always helps the show grow. Share it with a friend. And we will see you here next week on Uptime. Ah, well, no, wait, wait one second. Let me pitch the thing. And be sure to subscribe to Uptime Tech News in the show notes of this podcast, along with Rosemary's YouTube channel on renewable energy. We'll see you next week on Uptime. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.